Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. The Limitless podcast was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community that show that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet. Thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest today, but before I introduce her, I want to introduce my co-host, Keisha. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks. I'm actually super excited to learn more about uh, this amazing uh, focus that we're doing today. <laughs> yes, we are being very cagey here. We should yeah. probably uh, let people know who we're talking to. So I am super excited to introduce Danielle Main, who is the president and program coordinator of Leash of Hope. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for being here. I've been wanting to talk to you for months, so I'm, I'm super excited but before we sort of jump into what's Leash of Hope, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your vision journey? Yes, absolutely. So I have had um, optic nerve dysplasia my whole life, and that's a condition that affects the optic nerve part of the eye, which makes um, it not so apparent to the general public that I have a visual impairment. And um, so I'm low vision blind, and I see mostly big shapes and colors. Um, and so I have uh, had some ability to move freely as a young person um, and then had to use uh, mobility aids such as a dog or a cane uh, into my uh, adulthood um, uh, and as a, uh, I guess in my, in my 20s as well. So yeah. Okay, awesome. Just for frame of reference, Keisha and I both have RP, so we've kind of had a gradual degeneration of vision through our younger childhood years. Um, and Keisha, you, I also, yeah, why I wanted you here. Tell. <laughs> I also work with, uh, so I, I was a KD user, but in the last three years, I have uh, been working with a guide dog. And so I was excited to... I'm always excited to learn how different organizations operate and how different training styles work. So uh, that was kind of, I think, why Sean wanted me to help out. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So tell tell us and our listeners, what is Leash of Hope? So uh, upon its conception, myself uh, and um, the other founder, um, we looked at the landscape of guide dog and guide dog and service dog schools and programs and we realized that specifically um, that there is some fairly large gaps of communities that are being served um, and not just that too that there is ways that things could be done differently to potentially suit the needs of different types of people and um, my colleague and co-founder Tessa Schmidt's background being more specific to service dog training directly my background working with dogs was um from a more uh psychology and physiological basis i have a background in equine and canine sports massage therapy um wow <laughs> yeah so the two of us together and i ended up working with a lot of dogs with like behavioral issues 
um, where she had very much like traditional dog training education. And uh, and for point of reference, Tessa is uh, a wheelchair user with cerebral palsy. Both of us were also like very outgoing, active people uh, and recognize that there are some lifestyle needs that might be different than possibly what different programs were serving and also ways that we felt that being the inside users of, of you know, a guide or a service dog that might, we might be able to advocate for things to be done differently. Love that. So did you have a guide dog from a school, a different school before starting Leash of Hope? No, I was actually declined um, as I was someone who they thought was, uh, was labeled as like too sighted, independent, not necessarily oh. too sighted. Whoa. Um, yeah. And, um, it, and it's the, my lifestyle of being, it being like possibly too much on a dog. Um, I was also at a point too where I wasn't necessarily being entirely honest about how much usable vision I had and my entire like world as a teenager uh, revolved around trying to cover it up as much as possible and not put myself in situations where it was incredibly obvious that I was quite blind. So um, so that was accepting to use a guide dog was also that accept- accepting, you know, to be honest with my level of visual impairment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can relate to that. Just, okay, like this thing doesn't exist and we're gonna create it like (laughs) how did that come to be (laughs) i feel like yeah there was fully a conversation like are we crazy for doing this we might be crazy for doing this this is pretty unheard of and for context most larger programs that are out there like there's kind of two streams there's like private trainers that will help people privately train dogs for a fairly substantial amount and then there's the larger programs which actually usually stem and are supported um as almost like satellites of other programs that help them like create a baseline so they're never starting from scratch but we started from scratch Mm -hmm. so are you a charity or a business we are a registered charity yeah we do not charge for dogs we expect uh clientele to participate in fundraising that we also hand it and help them with but there is no expectation of people paying out of pocket. What were kind of some of the the things that you saw, um, the the gaps that you saw that initially made this organization come to fruition? Some of the gaps I would say would be people that needed um, dogs that were trained for multi-purpose areas. Um, I think that sometimes the the needs of people that um, vary from person to person. And it's really hard for larger programs and schools to predict that. And it means that only a specific set of skills can go into dogs before placement. So we sought out to stay really small and to be um, more specific to individual users. So for example, we uh, have three divisions of our program. Um, uh, medical alert dogs, guide dogs, and mobility dogs, and sometimes there can be crossover between, and that's a need that often wasn't filled. Um, and then for myself, the the original guide dog, the original dog of Leash of Hope was my guide dog, Pedro, who is a multi-talented dog, um, but he was a um, he was a Mexican street stray, and so part of our mission was, can we use rescue dogs? Can we use really well temperament tested 
puppies from rescue situations instead of uh, spending a lot of money um, in breeding programs where we feel that ethically that there is probably dogs that are just as healthy, well-temperamented, and capable to do the work without us uh, creating, you know, breeding dogs into the into the world. So that was that was also a um, a niche that we were filling. So our our slogan, our tagline is is providing hope at both ends of the leash. Mm. So. And also for me, as someone who was an incredibly active person, it meant that I had a dog that could really keep up with me. So, okay. <laughs> How? How do you do this? How do you get I a dog know. from the streets of Mexico? And then, like, that's so risky, I feel like. I mean, you know, you know it's crapshoot. Like, how does this work? So for context with that, too, I I had him before we started Leash of Hope. Okay. Um. And his temperament was was phenomenal, bomb-proof. Um, and I had him from a fairly young age. And he was the dog that uh, adapted around my visual impairment without me asking him to. Mm. Um, so because of that, it was like, okay, can we, can we do this with him? And we kind of used him as a guinea pig to see, can we teach... You know, like, like, look, let's look at the foundations for how we would want to train dogs and the expectation. And so he became the jack of all trades dog. He was the dog that you could put in guide gear and was my guide dog, but also press buttons and pick things up for Tessa in her wheelchair. Oh. So um, he was, I would still say one in a million, but um, he kind of started that baseline for proof of they can do it. Mm-hmm. What was his breed? He was a red healer and a greyhound. That's cool. So just... I think there's like a, a lot of people, like I, I know for me, like I have a German Shepherd and a lot of people are like, wow, I rarely see that breed um, as a guide dog, but I mean, it still happens. Um, uh-huh. And I think like there's this kind of preconception that like the, like, you know, retrievers, labs or shepherds are, or maybe poodles are the the guide dog breed. So I'm, and then like, where did that come from? Like, and I think like, like, have you found that breed really makes a difference at all? Like- it makes a difference to the person's need. And it's funny that you say that because my current guide dog is a standard poodle. And I, and I, against all of my personal feelings, because I'm very much pro-rescue, I ended up with her because I work in a clinical environment uh, as a massage therapist. So I really, like, struggled with, like, um, and my needs were so specific. And, um, and I think my last dog, Pedro, he was such a unicorn. I think I probably would be waiting a few decades before we found anything remotely like him in, in my books. Um, and But even having a standard poodle, which, you know, you would expect is a more, is definitely more typical than a red healer, like red spotty looking thing. Uh, I still get people going, oh, that's really unusual. And um, the way I like to explain it to public, it, it's kind of like, uh, guide dogs are kind of like cars. Uh, and this is meant to be no offense to anyone who has a lab and a golden cooper because they're such great, lovable dogs. But they're like a Toyota Corolla. Anyone can drive them. Right? <laughs> you get a shepherd or a poodle, standard poodle, where they drive your dog like driving a Ferrari. Um, so, and I think that's kind of where that comes from is that ultimately, for good reason, a lot of the bigger programs use these breeds uh, because they're really easy awesome dogs 
and they're they're the the everyday person's kind of dog. Hmm. Uh, and it means that it sets people up for success in public um, to not have as many mistakes or things like that because they are such easygoing dogs. And in that, they've also created kind of a stereotypes of people, even if the dog does make a mistake, they're like, oh, well, it's supposed to be here. It's lab. Oh, that lab might be eating something, but that's fine. It's a guide dog. And, <laughs> and that sounds really funny, but it kind of is like people don't, the expectation comes down a little bit because it, it's uh, created a stereotype standard, if you will. Yeah. So are certain breeds better for certain aspects of the training? Like, like somebody with a mobility impairment needing a dog to pick things up? Is there a breed that's better than some a guide? Like, does it make a difference? Uh, I would say it does. But one of the things that we have an opportunity to do as a really small program is we can really assess on an individual basis the dog's specific strengths and weaknesses of where a dog excels. And that's really cool because it means that we're not necessarily uh, going just by uh, breed of, well, we expect that this breed will do well at this, so that's what we're putting in. And we can really look at the dog's uh, innate desire to to do a job, which is really neat because you get dogs that are really excited to pick up items or be wheelchair dogs or pull a manual wheelchair or figure out the puzzle of guiding someone around and we can put them into that job. So mm. because of that, we also don't place dogs with people on a on a next in line, first come, first serve basis. We place by best fit rather than uh, you know, whoever's kind of up next, if you will. Yeah. There's dogs that pull manual wheelchairs. Yeah. Oh wow. Mm. That how does that work? Sorry, just a little side segue. How does that <laughs> work? Um, so think about what your guide dog does but at yeah. like Mach 10 <laughs> uh, yeah so the dogs are trained with a lot of the same commands that our guide dogs are trained to do um, with with being aware of navigating and maneuvering around people and stopping at curves and taking verbal cues from the handler but at speed wow. yeah <laughs> So it's, I would say, equally just as much of a trust relationship for a manual pulling dog as a guide dog. They must be like big, strong, beefy dogs too. Yeah, we definitely are really, um, in any program that does provide manual chair uh, pulling dogs, We there's really stringent rules that should be followed that, that anyone who's a professionalist is also running into the realm of uh, an area where it's really important for people not to try and train dogs themselves and put vests on them and go into public because no. only well, professionals really understand things like the ratio of how to fit and what size a dog should be for someone in a in a chair and the ergonomics that goes into it and the equipment that goes into it. Um, it's a lot of really important moving pieces for everybody's safety in that one. So how many, I mean, how, how does this work? Like, I know you, you, you have your own dogs and then sometimes you train people that already have a dog walk us through kind of somebody comes to you how does it how does it all work and how long does it take okay so we do like any other program we have an application process for us it's really important that we ensure that our dogs are going into the right environments and into safe uh sustainable homes and relationships with people and also to go into environments and situations where the person is going to be aware of the dog's needs and also aware of public safety and and you know kind of follow all the rules if you will um just like 
go back to that driving a car analogy, not everyone should just be able to be given the keys to the car and be put out on uh, allowed to get on the road. And so we do have a stringent application process for that reason, just like any other program. And we do offer what we call an owner assist training program, but we discourage it and we don't do very many of them. Um, and that's because there's so many, again, working pieces and liabilities that uh, can end up on the on the owner. And when I mean liabilities, I mean even down to if the something happens and the dog doesn't pass, then they've ended up with a potentially highly trained pet that's not all that useful to them. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes we as people with disabilities can't always support um, a dog to learning stages as much as it should um, throughout the learning and development process uh, in, in becoming a service or a guide dog and that where it becomes logistically really hard to ask someone with a disability to be like, oh, I understand that you're struggling today, but too bad because this is what your dog needs and in these really key learning phases, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, so we don't do a lot of the owner assist programs very often for that reason, um, but those people still have to follow and uh, pass our application process. And then we also have to do all of the behavioral and medical assessments on on the dog before we proceed. I was curious just a bit about like the behavioral testing. Like I'm assuming medical, I'm assuming it's self-explanatory in terms of it's a vet checks and different things about their health and their, their et cetera, et cetera. But the behavior testing, like what does that look like? Um, that looks like it's so to touch on the the medical it's not just as easy as is the dog healthy we also look at things like confirmation um we look at is the dog going to be at risk of anything as it ages it's just like the same as kind of any other program we want to make sure that there's longevity in the dog's physical form uh, as they do their job um beyond just the ways that we can help with making sure that they're handled properly um but then on the behavioral aspect we look at uh it's actually an eight-page evaluation that we have um, our network. So the first stage is this eight-page evaluation where it goes through social skills. It goes through testing them and how they react and respond and how well they've been exposed to things, to comfort with being handled and touched. Um, and this is something that we'll run on initial intake with a dog. And then the if we do accept taking a, a dog, usually a young puppy, into our program, uh, it'll spend a couple weeks with a one-on-one -on -one with, you know, Tessa or one of our more experienced staff before we actually start to officially put it in the program with a foster and puppy raiser. Uh, and then sometimes if we feel like we need to we will redo that that evaluation and put them through the same thing uh to see how they how they do um and how they're kind of coping sometimes it's an indication that uh you know maybe they're not learning what they need to be learning and they're not being exposed to what they need to be exposed to and it's really really integral for their success and their ability to move through public spaces unobtrusively and safely without causing any risk of harm to themselves or handlers or public. So do you get 
because the dogs breed isn't sort of that generic breed i'm just wondering if if your clients i don't know what you call them yep. <laughs> if you're blind folks or folk you know the, the handlers if they experience more issues of access um just it because maybe their service dog or their guide dog doesn't look like a typical guide or service animal Sometimes they can. I think the most telling thing about our society and community is the fact that it's not necessarily our guide dog handlers or our mobility handlers who are wheelchair users that are given a hard time. It's the people who look able-bodied, meaning when we provide dogs as medical alert dogs, um, so they're the people who don't trigger that, oh yeah, that's a guide dog to the general public. And even if they're Standing at a bus stop with a fully trained medical alert dog with a piece of government ID in their pocket, that bus driver will still drive by them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it doesn't come down to breed as much as that lack of public education and understanding of what, uh, that there are multiple different needs for assistance animals beyond just a guide dog or a wheelchair dog. Are you, do you have a building? Are you training like multiple dogs at a time? How big are you guys? It seems <laughs> small based on your website and your staff. Uh, it is small. Our website is being is being redone right now. That's something that's uh, one of those hard pieces where we need volunteer help for various mm-hmm. things and it can get hard, especially when you have, you know, your main driving forces uh, for me and as administrator, it's some can't see very much. So, yes. um, building a website isn't necessarily going to be my my forte um but uh we used to have space pre-pandemic uh thanks to thanks to the pandemic the leash of hope office got moved into my kitchen um Um, and uh we do we train about um four to six dogs at any given time per year and the other thing that's different about our program is we decided to spend a lot more time teaching uh, and giving guidance to our handlers once the dog is placed. So then on a one-year cycle, we could be training four to six guide dogs. And then also in that, over the span of almost a year, still working with and giving support to four to mm. six clients that have been placed with dogs. Mm. So That's good. Yeah, so even though we don't we don't have uh, an office space at the moment, we use donated space within the community when we can. And you know, thanks to the, the pandemic, we don't have a, a centralized location anymore. Um, we used to downtown, um, but uh, ultimately, it just means our dogs get really good exposure training, uh, being out in the world and mm-hmm. doing doing training sessions. Uh, no doubt, uh, out out in public. Um, when when it's appropriate, and then otherwise we have community donated space. So how do you choose? Like I'm just I can't. My mind is baffled by like how do you, you know, have the right people and the right dogs at the same time? <laughs> like that sounds you know, hard. It is hard, and sometimes you don't. You know, and it has happened where like one of the things that we do is the first month with the. A, cl- a placement is kind of a trial and if we see that it's not a good fit or we have concerns with the dog's welfare or any of that we just go nope and if we don't have anyone else who's not a good fit in the wait list after that then we don't we don't just make the dog 
fit whatever's next. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely like a factor. Um, but ultimately that kind of comes down to something that's important to us that we have that best match thing. And sometimes it means that the dog hang out with one of our staff for a little longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so be it. Um, it's, I saw that it said on the website that it, it takes two years to train the guide dog, which I think is typical, um, of other guide dog schools and stuff. But so is somebody waiting for two years then when they apply? Someone can wait from six months to three years. It's again, because we're looking at that best fit. Um, Mm -hmm. so the way that our program works is we place as a cohort on a yearly cycle, which is also kind of neat because then it means that people go through their education program with other people and have like a graduating, you know, class. Well, we mm-hmm. do that once a year and our program is 10 months. It's not two or three weeks, it's 10 okay. months. Uh, it's 10 months of, we start with the intensive stuff and then we send you out into the world and we do more and more checks on you until it's, you know, once a month of showing us that you can, you're doing well and can uphold the training on your own. Um, it leaves a lot more room for people to make mistakes and have guidance and, and mm-hmm. to really learn to be really robust, well-knowledged dog owners and handlers, mm-hmm. which is why we designed it that way. Um, but that means that uh, with us only placing dogs once a year, that uh, if someone doesn't have, if we don't have a dog that's the best fit, they could be waiting for the next year. And and mm-hmm. because you know we have these these dogs kind of constantly cycling in on this one-year mark at these various stages, we do try to make sure that people don't wait more than three years. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, but by the time they've passed the first or maybe second year, we start really making sure that we can find something very specific for someone who doesn't happen very often. And are, is the person connected with their dog earlier than, like when they're a puppy? Like at what, how old is the dog once you've figured out it's the right uh, fit for somebody or when do they get matched? We do a process called test driving um, and that's where you, someone comes out and will spend time and, and you know, kind of put you through these paces a bit like any other program with more than one dog and that all, not only allows us to be like, oh, I think that one of these dogs is a good fit but it gives us other information if it's not to be like, okay, you can see that we need you need a dog with this temperament this kind of gate, maybe this size, and it helps us like build a picture almost like you're filling out a custom order form for your mm. <laughs> for a guide dog. And so if we don't have those things, it means we can go out and, and seek it. Uh, and then at that point, it usually comes down to us sending an email going, we have your dog. Um, so we might not meet it until they get that letter that says that, but it's being trained based on that information um, mm-hmm. or it could be one of the dogs that they test drove. Right. So I'm assuming your students are all local to Metro Vancouver? We've trained dogs as far out as Saskatchewan. Oh, wow. uh, we have dogs as far as also like within BC, we've got dogs on the island, northern BC, uh, found out that a dog that we thought we were placing within, you know, the in the Cooney region is going to school somewhere down in Texas. So it's probably the farthest afield will <laughs> work. Um, and it just means that a little more fundraising has to be done for some travel accommodation. Okay. So your trainer would follow the dog to where the person is? 
it's a bit of both. So okay. in that in that instance, the person will come down, uh, be placed with the dog. We'll send them out. We'll do some virtual check-ins, which we got very good at again over the pandemic. Um, and then we'll send a trainer out to work with them, and they'll they have to meet the same criteria of hours of our program, regardless of where they live. Mm. So um, this is kind of where my job comes in. Um, I've developed uh, a whole handler manual, and in that is a is a very comprehensive handler level system to make sure that they understand um, uh, basic basic handling and commands, basic public access protocols, and then we get into the more advanced stuff, and they have to do the same amount of hours per each of those levels, regardless of where they live. That's cool. I mean, my experience of a guide dog was the the two-week program, and (laughs) it wasn't enough. I know it wasn't enough for me, and I was uncomfortable with dogs when I went through that program. So I probably needed two weeks just to stop being scared, and it's really hard to form a bond and learn what you need to learn when you're afraid of your dog. So I, oh my I there's so many reasons why it didn't work out for me, but I do think that follow-up afterwards, because I was making calls to the school and I did get some home visits and, you know, they came to check on me a few times and work through things, but it was too infrequent. It like, it's like, I can't wait a month for you to come here when, you know, my dog's doing yeah. things they shouldn't be and anyways yeah it didn't work out very well and that's the thing and so that was one of the things we looked at that other programs do because that's what they have the capacity to do to spend two or three weeks with someone and for some people it's like learning a language and adopting a child all at once Mm. maybe we'll throw it and being handed the keys to the to a ferrari and it's just to be handed that and being like okay off you go into the world it's a it's a pretty big ask and it can be very hard on on the dog and a person um if you're learning the whole new language of how to speak dog right mm-hmm. so that was one of the things we we sought out to do how can we do that differently for people who have different learning needs people who haven't owned a dog before and may not speak dog very well because it's not second nature from growing up with a dog at home and you know how, how do we accommodate for all of these things and that was why we created our program the way that we did yeah okay so i have two scenario questions um i know you said you kind of discouraged the whole people already having a dog and these are both related to that so it's okay if the answer is no but um okay so i know somebody who they just they got a puppy a few months ago and um the mother of this young adult has some mobility challenges and and needs support and Uh assistance with you know bending over and picking things up but also like just she could fall at any moment basically so uh, it's a big dog and this young woman it has trained it to take off socks which i thought Uh was so cool she was talking me through how she trained the dog to do that and she's just watching youtube videos but she wants to train the dog to be a support to her mom is that something leash of hope could help with it is already a pretty young dog it's it is the family pet um and she's just trying to kind of you know teach it these extra things um it could and again the the caveat to that is does it meet all of yeah. our temperament testing to be safe in public. Right. Does it meet um, 
does the family have the capacity to, to put in all of the work to meet the standards of training we ask for, and then also uphold and actually use it to be a benefit? That's the other thing people don't always think about is that sometimes people think that they they want this and they don't realize how much work goes into it and also mm-hmm. how much attention you get in public, which is, I'm sure, right. uh, Keisha, you oh, understand yeah. how, you know. Oh, so, yeah. Um, and so sometimes people don't expect that. There are downsides to having a dog with you in public. But in theory, if it, they were to pass our you know, our application process, the dog's assessment, and then be willing to to follow the really stringent chain training program we have and then continue to adhere to the, the rules that are in place that we've, that we frankly make people sign a contract to be like nope you we ask you not to have the dog in public for any reason you won't and we do that um just like in either school for public safety Mm -hmm. uh and and so that's the hard thing when someone owns their own dogs they're basically you know it could be if we pull the plug and say it's just a pet then they just have to accept that too Mm -hmm. so um so that would be a scenario where they can apply and if it's if all of those things fall into place uh, it could potentially happen. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Um, okay. Here's my other scenario. This one is purely selfish. <laughs> so um, and I doubt, I think the answer is going to be no to this, but I, as a blind person have a family pet dog. And when I had a guide dog, I could take the dog out and pick up after it because the dog was trained, but you know, it's a puppy. Well, he's, He's a year and uh, he'll be two in April. So, um, but he's a mini labradoodle. So he's little like to bend down and feel his back when he's going to the bathroom to have him like do the twirly thing on the leash, like all the things that I was taught. I, is it, you know, can I call you up, apply just to learn how to train my dog so that I can pick up after it? Like, you know, just a, like a couple of little things if you want your dog to be able to do for you and you have a disability. Is that a thing you do? It is a thing because ultimately our staff are still dog trainers. So if you want private dog training, absolutely. Okay. Okay. okay so, cool. Yeah. Because I'm sure I'm not the um, only person in that situation that has a family pet and maybe like even, you know, teaching the animal to get out of the way when I'm coming into the room. So my dog will, he, he gets to be on the couch because he's little, but I've almost sat on him so many times. And eventually I think he's going to figure out to scooch over. <laughs> I think you he did this morning. Surprised. Even my dog, who is a trained guide dog, doesn't sometimes <laughs> learn how to scooch. Uh, like you just want to be stepped on, I guess. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and that is something you can teach, but I'm also laughing because my standard poodle is next to me on one side. Um, and fun fact uh, about me, I also have a blind cat. Okay. Um, uh, so we like collide. I sit on him regularly. All of the things. <laughs> like, it's like one of those things that it's like, seems obviously like, oh, it's probably great because your house is set up for someone who's blind. And it is. But then there's the logistics of neither of us can see each other. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> well, cat training, no, we won't do. Yes, we, we probably could come in and help you with that. Um, I mean, recently, my colleague uh, got a call to work with someone who has newly become a wheelchair user and they had a family pet. And that's a huge thing to learn to integrate mm-hmm. how to handle a dog instead of a wheelchair. And that's just a pet. So um, 
in honesty, she takes on more of the private doctrine than I do because of uh, I have a lot more uh, other things going on where uh, Tessa is fully in it with the dogs, whereas uh, I mentioned that I have an RMT practice as a massage therapist and I'm very into adaptive sports. So that's a whole other thing. So I kind of leave that stuff to her these days. Right. Okay. So if if people are listening, I don't I mean I don't want you to get flooded with requests, but yeah, I could see that being no, that's fine. a popular it, thing. Well, and it's important and I and I don't mind if we did get flooded with stuff like that because there are two things. One, it's important for people to have access to the companionship of animals. It doesn't need to be a service dog or a guide dog. Dogs are incredibly therapeutic uh, as they are without mm-hmm. adding all of that. Uh, and secondary to that, there it's a very niche skill that standard dog trainers or regular dog trainers don't likely understand that well. But uh, folks like Tessa and myself definitely do. Yeah, awesome. I just want to back up because I'm super curious to find out how you got into equine. Uh, uh, what did you call that? Uh, oh, sports <laughs> therapy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Like, wow. Where do you even go to learn that stuff? How? 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 Tell us. How did it all start for you? So, um, being again a young person with a visual impairment, feeling very like out of place, I became very um, enamored and comfortable working around being around horses. And it was very like healing for me and I wanted to continue to be in that industry and work for them. And I spent many years working with a therapeutic riding school and becoming like an an assistant instructor and working with the head of a riding school and going on to uh, compete in some dressage. And so all of my love for being around horses and animals led me to the BC College of Equine Sports Therapy uh, in the Okanagan where I did a two-year uh, program with them. And even though it was primarily centered around horses, um, they had some extracurriculars where you could work with dogs as well, uh, which I did. Um, the unfortunate part about that career path was uh, proximity and not being able to drive as someone who couldn't see. Mm. Uh, but it gave me an opportunity to build confidence and skill. And now I'm a massage therapist for people. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's so cool where that came from. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's super cool, actually. And my dogs love it. So, you know, it wasn't entirely a waste. How do you fit all this in your massage therapist and this? <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> uh, you can also add to that, that I train six days a week as an aspiring competitive rower. Um, so, because um, my policy to life is that everything is just really, really fun. So why not do it all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I relate. subscribe to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why? Why not? Why not? So today, to give you an example, uh, this morning I was up uh, in a in a boat on the water on the lake at six thirty in the morning. I came back, did a bit of paperwork stuff for Leash Hope. Now I'm on this podcast and then I'll go to my clinical practice later after this. So. <laughs> That's a great a day. Standard <laughs> day in my world. Yeah. Right. Yes. I, I, I can relate. When I started Blind Beginnings, I was uh, an elite athlete on the national team and um, was doing my master's in counseling. So <laughs> it's just... There you go. Yeah. 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 It is tiring it, sometimes, but 
but this comes down to yeah and it's important for people to realize that regardless of their disability they can be ambitious Mm -hmm. and so this is part of also why we started leash of hope because it was really important to me to have a dog that fit my lifestyle and that could keep up with me and do these things so now whether it's in trains um, you know, guide dogs for people, wheelchair dogs for people, whatever, whatever it is, it's just really neat to see um, people, ex- their worlds, you know, just become a lot bigger because of the the help of these animals. And it's just really, really, it, uh, it makes it all, all the hard work worth it. Yeah. So you must, do you need volunteers, donations? Like how can people get involved and help out in some way? Always. We always need, um, we do lots of fundraising. Like right now we've got a calendar campaign, which obviously isn't uh, very uh, blind friendly, but they do make, (laughs) they do make great gifts for our sighted friends and they're Mm. full of professional photography of all of our dogs with little like fun facts about our dogs. Oh, cool. Um, And uh, I'm actually uh, someone who has one of our dogs, who's a friend of mine, who's a Paralympian, uh, who's a triathlete from the island, uh, is getting one of the calendars. And we have a volunteer who's brailing all of the descriptions and the calendars for her right now, which is really oh, cool. Very cool. Um, and I can say that on this podcast because she'll get it before. I'm sure you guys publish yes. this. So. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we do fundraisers like that. We also do really cool pub nights where our dogs will do like talent shows and skill testers and kind of show off the way we'll say our last one, uh, which was our first one post pandemic. We were like, oh yeah, we haven't had all of our dogs in one space in a really long time. And that was a bit of an oversight, but generally <laughs> it's a really cool evening of dogs showing off their skills and you see everything from, you know, the advanced training that goes into dogs to our clients. Um, training, trick training for fun. We have a mobility client that trained a dog to make a salad. Uh, what? Yeah. Yeah. It was <laughs> taking measuring, taking measuring cups in his mouth and dumping it into the salad bowl. Oh you know? my goodness. <laughs> yeah. That's um, cool. Dogs are previous, amazing. They are amazing. In a previous showcase, my last guide dog, Pedro, I had taught him to on command identify or point at various anatomy parts of the body um, because I'd been in RMT school. So I said, okay, where's your patella? Where's your tibia? And he just sat there and was, you know, so Aww. that was what I did with him one year. We had dog that someone taught to jump through hoops for fun. And so there's all of like the, the advanced serious, you know, will the dog leave it? And will the dog, you know, have all the leash manners and the downstays and all of that complicated training. And then there's the fun stuff. And so that's often our showcase, which is in the spring. Um, but besides that, we're always looking for donations and puppy raisers, um, and always looking for really cool people who want a cool companion and a really fun dog. So amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm still, I guess I'm still thinking about the dog that made salad like that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I was yeah. just thinking about like, like, I don't know, like sometimes my own guide amazes me at like how quick he'll pick up things when he's in a when he's in a picking up things mood uh, <laughs> um, but I just I'm like oh sometimes I'm like have we how much of the surface have we been scratched with you sir like mm-hmm. <laughs> well mm-hmm. and that, and that's the thing and so even with our guide dogs one of the things that we did with Pedro was that he wasn't just a guide dog he was a guide dog that could find and press crosswalk buttons and retrieve items that I dropped that I couldn't see and 
I mean, the guide dog that I mentioned, it was a shepherd uh, for the wow. triathlete. Who, uh, that dog, at one point, she had a bag of oranges that opened, and the dog went and collected every single one of the oranges from around her house. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so the list of those dogs was, you know, my dog, Pedro, was a Mexican street stray. That shepherd puppy who grew up to be this amazing guide dog who's still on the island um, was a... Uh, puppy who was like six weeks old on the euthanasia list in texas which is oh. so young um yeah and then the dog that could make the salad with it was a rescue from california wow so yeah so it, that's Thanks. just that's really heartening like they they go from these dogs who have like very little like you know there's kind of on in a dire position uh-huh. to these dogs who have amazing jobs and pretty fulfilling lives hopefully and yeah yeah exactly and it's neat because it it really is proof um you know especially when right now as far as um to to be able to have a a provincial public access card the dogs have to go through a, a fairly basic too basic in my opinion public access test through the the province of bc if you want the you know the bc card here Mm-hmm. Um, as an example, and one of our dogs, the assessor took a video as what perfection looked like as an example for uh, for future development of their system. Cool. And to have that done with a dog that you knew that we know is a uh, a stray from California yeah. is very validating. Oh. Yeah, no doubt. Wow. wow. Well, I'm so grateful to have gotten to. Uh, hear about your organization and just thank you for sharing your wisdom because it's uh, uh <laughs> yeah like I said my my mind's blown and um I really like that intersectionality of different um like dogs doing various jobs that's really cool and yeah it is very cool and it's neat because we have you know people did do have different needs um and we have both kids and adults uh, and the other thing that we advocate for, which I think makes our dogs really well behaved, is that when the best in the year comes off, they're just a dog. And I think that that was the the mental welfare uh, and the mental well being of of their dogs first. Uh, sometimes it's a bit missed with some of the old school methodologies of guide dog training, and that's when I think you see the most of those dogs that aren't doing their jobs very well because they're very restless and distracted and all of that and I think that's part of also what makes our dogs really really solid and they love what they're doing and um it so this has been a passion project for the last nine years for that reason I have one last question um I know some I, I don't I think I only know of one guide dog school that trains their dogs to be a running guide uh-huh. have you done that have you guys trained a dog to run with somebody We've trained two dogs. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. <laughs> One of which, so so I'll just also I'll name drop that for that sake. So the guide dog I was mentioning is Jessica Tuamla, and she's in Victoria, and she's a triathlete. And right now um, she is uh, embarking on doing a 50-kilometer run in Utah, and part of one of those stretches she will be using her guide dog, Brandy, who's Alicia Hope dog, to oh, be the guide wow. for. That's cool. so awesome. Wow. Yeah. So go follow her if anyone's on social media and stuff. Of course, Alicia Pope, we do have a, like Instagram and, and Facebook, but um, people like that, uh, it's really neat to follow what they're doing with their dog. Yeah. 
Oh, congratulations, Danielle. What an amazing accomplishment. This is so cool. Um, where can people find you or Leash of Hope? Uh, so we have our website, which I mentioned we are looking at uh, building to be a little more robust, which is uh, leashofhopeassistancedogs.com. Uh, we have Instagram and Facebook, which are both just Leash of Hope Assistance Dogs, and those are probably your best two places. Um to, to reach out to us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks yeah, for being thank here you. and sharing all oh, this. It's my pleasure. I love what you guys are doing and uh, any way that we can be involved and support the community. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share a podcast, like, subscribe, leave us a rating and join us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted, along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.